Hey, Boomy, I have a topic that I'm curious about, and I was hoping you can talk about it on your podcast. U.S. aid. What is it? How is it structured? Who runs it? How is it funded? But the question that really concerns me is, what are its goals, and how does it make sure that it's achieving those goals, and how do we hold them accountable? I'm a big believer in effective altruism, and it drives me absolutely crazy when I see philanthropic organizations just throw money at problems without going back to see if what they're trying to do is working. So if you can go over this on your podcast, I would love it. And I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Thanks. Bye. That was my good friend from college and my roommate of four years, Lanola, uh, who lives up in Boston. We call her Nola. And uh, Nola is one of the most uh, giving, smartest, uh, pretty logical person uh, that I know. And she asks a great question that I think a lot of people wonder, and that is, you know, what happens when we send our money abroad and help other countries? How do we know that we're doing a good job? Are we wasting our funds? Um, Are there duplicate organizations in the government that are doing the same sorts of things? And you might have seen some of this in Eduardo Vargas uh, to explain what foreign assistance is about, uh, how it works, and how do we know that we're successful. So stay tuned to this episode of What in the World. You've tuned into What in the World right here on WERA 96.7 FM and streaming online at WERA.FM. I'm your host, Bumia Kinesotu, and in case you're late, this is a show that makes global issues understandable and relevant to your everyday life. On today's show, we'll be taking a look at one of the four D's of America's approach to foreign policy, and that is development, or what some call it, aid or foreign assistance. If you listen to our very first uh, show, you remember Ambassador Brigitte talked about the four D's, development, diplomacy, defense, and democracy. So today we're talking about um, development. Um, So during this very short time we have, we're going to try to unpack a couple of questions about the effectiveness of aid and and why it even matters to to Americans. And this is a very hard issue with many, many layers. My guest today, Eduardo Vargas, is going to talk through some of those issues at the surface um, uh, and, and really sort of give us the 101 around foreign assistance from his experience. So my good friend Eduardo and I first met last year through his sister. And I remember talking to you, Eduardo, and um, just re- remember appreciating your honesty and openness uh, about the the web that is USAID or the United States uh, Aid and International Development Agency. And um, Eduardo has a great background, uh, having worked at USAID himself in an office that um, addresses faith-based or works with faith-based and civil society organizations around the world. Um, He's also done work in various countries uh, around interreligious engagement between the West and Islamic countries. Uh, He's also been selected by Huffington Post's uh, 40 Under 40, uh, Latinos in Foreign Policy, which so he's a superstar. He's quite important. Uh, And Eduardo, Eduardo, what I like about you is you're you're energetic, you're passionate, and you're incredibly real, as I mentioned. So um, our listeners are in for a fantastic uh, conversation. Eduardo, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bumi. It's uh, it's quite a privilege to be here, and uh, you're very kind for extending me this invitation on such a timely <laughs> topic. And I hear that introduction, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> I only pick the best. <laughs> I only I only pick the best. I only well, pick the best people for this show. That's anyway. very generous. Of you. Thanks. <laughs> uh, uh, so, Eduardo, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, how did you get to this world of of foreign policy and global issues? Since I've been little, I mean, then, since I remember, I've been traveling back and forth between the United States and Colombia. I actually grew up in Colombia. Um, I went to school there. I went to college here in the United States. I moved back. So, you know, my entire life has been, you know, this back and forth. And that really interested me because, you know, we we're always traveling. Um, you know, I was very fortunate enough to have uh, two parents who I love dearly to, you know, inculcate in us the need to have a worldview, to get to know different cultures, to get to know different perspectives. Um, and we were able to do that by, you know, by traveling, traveling to Mexico, traveling to Ecuador, Canada, Turkey, so on and so forth. So that really kind of ingrained in me a need to 
or a desire to get to know more things and to know, get to know what's kind of outside of my specific sphere. Mm-hmm. And um, that really kind of uh, prompted my interest in, you know, working in international development and international affairs, which is, has always been my passion since I was little. And it took me a while to actually get here. I, I'm labeling you the, 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 international, the interreligious guy, our peace building guy. What specifically about sort of interreligious engagement or inter or religious um, uh, relationships intrigues you? Well, it, it's, it's funny, you know, the way life is, I had never thought about doing that, working in that field, but um, apparently because of my appearance and um, yeah, because of my appearance, I was able to grow a beard and everything. It kind of like <laughs> lended myself to, you know, uh, for me to be volunteered to travel to the Middle East. Huh. Um, and Meaning people thought you looked... Yeah, I, I fit in. Yeah, you, know, you fit I, in. I, I would easily. fit in. I More so than... Than somebody else. Than somebody else. Okay. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yes. So, okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, I'm Catholic and I've, you know, always gone to Catholic schools and actually I did my master's at a Catholic university. Um, so that, you know, that identity has always been interested, but mm. interesting, but, um, you know, a lot of times when we look at things, uh, religion, there's so many things that we focus on religion that divide us, but there's so many more things that really kind of bring us together that we have in common. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happened after nine 11 was, you know, this corrosive dialogue around Islam and how Islam, you know, was a religion of violence, so on and so forth. But if you look at the three Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and, and um, Islam, uh, they share one thing in common. And I think all our religions share one thing and uh, share a couple of things in common. But the most important part, part to me is everyday ethics mm. that religion teaches and that all these religions and even outside the Abrahamic faiths, they say in some way or another, you know, do unto others as you would have them do mm-hmm. unto you, the golden rule type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so if we focus on this part of it, not so much on the difference of theology or the difference of spirituality, we have a very strong foundation from which we can begin to build. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part that's really interested me is how, why are we focusing on, you know, why do you pray on Friday and why right. do I pray on Sunday right. and, you know, dividing this thing, which is an opinion, it's right. relative to you, whereas we have this everyday ethics. Right, that we um, all sharing. That we, we have all in share. common, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. And and right now, uh, speaking of religion and your career, you're at the International Center for Religion uh, and Diplomacy. Tell us what you do there. So the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy, ICRD, um, is an organization. It's an NGO. I like to think of it also as a think tank because we've produced um, very interesting um, publication and research. And essentially what ICRD does is bridges religious considerations with the practice of international politics in support of peacemaking. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that really sticks out to, the, in, to me in this is the fact that when we talk about foreign policy, when we talk about international relations, we really have to be able to include the strongest actors to be able to mitigate the conflicts or to mm-hmm. be able to advance the, you know, humanitarian ideals that we're trying to push. Mm -hmm. And ICRD does that by involving faith-based organizations, faith-based actors in this. Mm -hmm. And this is something that NGOs have beginning, have begun to see. And under uh, President Obama, we, the United States actually developed a strategy for religious, uh, for global religious leader engagement Mm -hmm. that really kind of gave nod to the fact that we have to, there's areas of the world that, um, that, for lack of a better word, are ungovernable. Mm-hmm. Um, the government has no presence. So it's really the temple, the mosque, the church right. that run things. Interesting. So we have to incorporate these actors into our policies and right. we have to make sure that we include them. Right. And that's what ICRD does. You said that faith-based institutions are sort of one of the ways that we can you know, make sure that our humanitarian or uh, development work is is effective, right? We, we partner with those organizations. So um, what, what do we actually um, mean by development or foreign assistance? Like, it, the, 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 these are like lingo. This is lingo of this space, right? Um, and people hear development and might think different things or foreign assistant or foreign aid or human aid. There's so many phrases. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> so how, how welcome would to you, Washington. <laughs> I, well, yes. Good Lord. That's why this show exists yeah. though, to, to break this apart. So how would you define foreign assistance? 
Foreign assist, the name of foreign assistance is a bit schizophrenic because it doesn't know what it, to call itself. So foreign <laughs> assistant, development aid, technical assistance, right. so on and so forth. I think um, ideally, uh, by definition, in foreign assistance, we look at that or development aid, which I think are the two most common names that we use in that. Um, and by definition, it's a voluntary transfer of resources um, from one country to another with the intent of helping out the country, that specific country or its people, mm -hmm. okay? Um, essentially for the U.S., foreign assistance is aid given by the United States to other countries to support um, and to support specific things that we have targeted, which typically are global peace, mm -hmm. uh, security, um, development efforts, and to provide humanitarian assistance and relief in times of emergency. Mm -hmm. um, now, these things, it, it may sound a bit callous, but they really serve our benefits, mm -hmm. um, our strategic, our economic, um, our geopolitical, and national security benefits. Um, because it's trying to mitigate those problems or trying to address those problems in a way to put it very crassly um, before it comes to our shore. Right, right. That's, a, that's an important part. And I think a lot of people maybe miss that part about foreign assistance. I think... You know, so right now, well, earlier this this summer, you know, there were debates about reorganizing our foreign assistance and the way we do those things and how much money they need. And uh, I think a lot of people miss the, or I think Americans in general might miss the point of what you just said, which is we want to try to help others before their issues or other issues meet our our doorstep. And uh, there are a lot of a lot of. Um, I think global examples, like for example, Ebola is one that people will remember. And uh, uh, there's the Syrian crisis and the refugees and, and all of that. Um, so you, you touched on it a little bit about why, like besides the moral and good reason, uh, what are other reasons we Western powers in particular, because we have the resources, right? We could just let everybody do whatever they want to do. We could just let the UK take care of Africa. We could just let Australia take care of Asian countries. But why do we do foreign assistance the way we do it? Why, why, you know, why do we, why do we, why does USAID, you know, Millennium Challenge Corporation, like why do they actually exist? So, I think in a sense, I mean, this could be argued by other countries, but it, from a historical perspective, I think foreign aid was really kind of um, either the United States idea in a sense, or the United States greatly contributed to it. Mm -hmm. um, just like the United Nations was the United States idea, is the mm -hmm. United States idea, the League of Nations. Um, and so this internationalist approach to kind of a, a global uh, stability mm -hmm. is needed. So... After World War II, uh, Europe was in shambles, mm -hmm. and we were confronting uh, the Cold War with Russia trying to win, you know, territories and peoples and so on and so forth. And so the United States very astutely saw the need to invest in Europe to help rebuild it, to get these countries back up on their feet so they're able to sustain themselves mm -hmm. and um, prosper and not be susceptible to uh, whatever... Uh, the Soviet Union was mm -hmm. offering at that time. Mm -hmm. The Secretary of State at the time, George Marshall, who was also a five-star general, a general of the army and a Nobel Prize winner, uh, really kind of developed this as the Marshall Plan. Marshall Plan, yeah. Um, you know, so it, it, from that sense, it really, it, it really kind of ended up taking off in the fact that, um, you know, he advocated the need to do this. He advocated a need to invest in, in Europe to help the refugees, to mm -hmm. help these people, because if there were no opportunities and there was no infrastructure, where were they going to go? Right. They were going to try to come to the United States. They were going to try, essentially, they were going to try to come to the United States. Um, so the Marshall Plan essentially provided significant financial and technical assistance for Europe after the war. That was essentially kind of the genesis that allowed Europe to rebuild its infrastructure and strengthen its economy um, and, you know, stabilize itself as a region. And because of that development, that, that Marshall Plan, I guess you could say, you know, the European Union, Europe is, you know, our biggest allies right. outside of Canada right. is right. in Europe, right. are in Europe. That's why we have it. I think a lot of countries, you know, there's many agencies in many countries that also provide uh, foreign assistance mm -hmm. and development aid, mm -hmm. um, France, the United Kingdom, Australia, Australia, France, Spain, so on and so yeah. forth, Spain, yes. And I think a lot of it has been 
to take care of kind of their their former colonies, right, um, right. recognizing the fact that uh, historically European colonizers uh, just raped in material and brains right. and uh, you know you name it right. these colonies. So it put them at a disadvantage when they gained their independence. Right. To really be in a situation where they could govern themselves and right. they could have adequate use of the resources, right. so on and so forth. So it, there is that historical perspective. And then there is that perspective of, as I said earlier, you know, to tackle these problems before it comes to their shores. So you see issues of migration, mm-hmm. right? And the Francophone countries in Africa, a lot of the people are leaving. And where are they going to? Right. They're going to France. Right. Um, you know, in the former British Empire, right. you have large numbers after the partition of India and Pakistan that immigrated to the United Kingdom right. and so on and so forth. So it's it's essentially to help kind of arrest these things, mm-hmm. to help provide their respective colonies or even developing countries the infrastructure to be able to, to sustain their population right. um, and also to improve, you know, different indicators such as maternal and child health. I mean, right. who, do, who wants babies dying, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> ending poverty, <laughs> things of that sort. So I think yeah. it, it, it depends on the country, but it serves these specific purposes. And that's why typically powers give to this. And um, and historically, the United States uh, became involved with aid um, to win the hearts and minds to counterrest what the Soviet Union was offering right. and and really to get people to, you know, to have allies, to have, and to have our of, allies. And would you say in a lot of ways, too, you know, America's foreign assistant is a part of building our brand? Yes, it is. Um, when people look to the United States, so a, a quick story. Uh, I was in Syria a couple years back, and we were in an apartment of about four families. So a total of about like, you know, a little over 20 people in a two-bedroom apartment in outside of Damascus. And we were conducting some interviews, and I remembered they had a curtain in one of the rooms that was a food aid package <laughs> from USAID. It said from the American people. It literally said bra- it was branded. Yeah, it was branded. It was branded by USAID, and it said from the American And it people. was being used as a curtain. Yeah, it was being used as a curtain. <laughs> and, um, you know, it made me proud to see that. I, You know, just that the initial thing was that, and this was before I was working with USAID. Um, but I asked, you know, what is this? They're like, these are food supplies that we got that helped to sustain, you know, the family for some time and everything. And and thank you, America. Wow. And so wow. when we talk about hearts and minds, if we're looking at it from uh, a selfish point of view, you know, we are winning hearts and minds through wow. aid. Um, but if we're looking at it from a humanitarian point of view, you know, it allowed his family of five, six people right. to survive, to, you know, to live, to survive another day, right. and, you know, make it all the way to Syria. And you don't hear about those <clears throat> stories, right? Like, I feel like when I, even when I was doing research for this and I was looking up critiques about USCID, no one ever, no one said like, oh, I'll get rid of USAID. But there, I think in DC and certainly on the macro level, we talk about assistance and we're like, oh, we don't know the impact we don't know if it's working. We don't know um, if if things are changing. But what you just shared is something that resonates with me because we often don't hear about like just the basic, like did somebody get food at the end of the day? Did somebody um, get access to clean water? Was their family kept safe from, uh, you know, from violence? Was someone able to vote that couldn't vote before? Uh, and so I appreciate you sharing that because I think uh, it's easy to get lost in the, 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 the intellectual bubble of foreign assistance and whether or not it's effective um, and, and lose sight of the real changes that happen like on a day-to-day p- basis in people's lives. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it, it does. I've, I've traveled to a handful of countries working on development and humanitarian assistance issues, both as part of the U.S. government and outside of the U.S. government. And, you know, it may sound cliche, but to see that somebody is actually able to eat, mm. to see that somebody actually has hope, which many times that's, you know, that's the only thing keeping them alive because of development aid or foreign assistance or whatever you want to, you, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Is quite impactful, and um, people do get lost in the numbers and the statistics. Mm-hmm. But it does have a very positive impact, right? 
it does have a very positive income. Let's talk about the, the infrastructure of, of or is sort of the setup of how America does foreign assistance. Um, so depending on on which agencies or which government organizations you count, uh, the federal government has about half a dozen to you know, like a dozen or two dozen or so federal agencies that do some form of foreign assistance. And we won't go through all of them, um, but the most that people, <laughs> there's a lot. That's, that's another show. <laughs> but the, the one that most people hear about is what we're talking about today, which is the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID for short. Um, and according to um, a study done by Kaiser Family Foundation, 5% of Americans know the true extent of um, what America does in the fight against like global poverty, for example. Eduardo, just give us the high level overview of what USAID, what their intended mission is and just like how it operates as a as a federal agency. What do they actually do? There's departments within the US government. So you have Department of State, Department of Defense, Department of Justice, so on and so forth. And then you also have independent agencies in the United States um, that are not that are not part of a department, but we're closely aligned with departments and with other agencies and with other factor with other departments in the United States. USAID is an independent federal government agency, right, that receives overall policy guidance from the Secretary of State. Okay. A lot of people believe that USAID is part of the Department of State, that it's subordinate to the Department of State, but USAID is an independent agency. It is um, run by an administrator that is uh, Senate confirmed, Mm -hmm. um, nominated by the president and Senate confirmed. Um, So it's important to know that it's not part of the Department of State, although the state and USAID team is a very strong team because we work hand in hand. Right, and the State Department being like the foremost important international face of yes. the United of the United States. Indeed, indeed. And so the State Department will typically handle diplomacy and policy, um, things of this nature. And USAID will handle the development of, you know, like creating, helping programs to dig wells, right. uh, to end maternal and child deaths, to um, infrastructure education, um, health, so on and these, th- so on and so forth. So these things are done specifically by USAID. Now, USAID provides typically economic development and humanitarian system around the uh, humanitarian assistance around the world in support of foreign policy goals of the United States. About four or five years ago, under the administrator, under the administrator at that time, Dr. Rajiv Shah, USAID streamlined its mission. So its, its mission statement is USAID partners to end extreme poverty and promote resilient democratic societies while advancing our security and prosperity. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think it's probably easier if people look at that and then start breaking it down piece by piece mm-hmm. um, as to the mission of USAID, which I could you know kind of sprinkle more throughout our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but USAID was created in 1961 mm-hmm. um, under the Foreign Assistance Act, mm-hmm. and it basically um, reorganized the manifold U.S. foreign assistance agencies that were in existence. So it brought them all, uh, for lack of a better term, it brought them all uh, right. you know, under one umbrella. And it separated military and non-military aid. And um, President Kennedy, he established USAID in 1961 as an um, as an agency essential to advance the moral, economic, and strategic considerations in a world facing instability and communism, right? As such, as I mentioned earlier, you know, USA, the foreign assistance, uh, foreign aid goes to peace, to global peace mm-hmm. and security, so on and so forth. USAID focuses primarily on advancing human rights, on alleviating poverty, uh, on mitigating conflict and management and managing that conflict mm-hmm. and on humanitarian and disaster assistance mm-hmm. and the way USAID specifically does that is either through technical assistance mm-hmm. um, trainings technical advice uh, or through financial assistance which is uh, monetary supplements to budgets um, of governments, of uh, NGOs assisting governments. So we don't give money to like an individual. We don't give like, you know, $100,000 to the president of 
of uh, you know Venezuela or, where, or Paraguay or whatever. Yeah. We give the money to a, gov- a, a another governing body in that mm-hmm. country or a non govern another nonprofit or school or whatever it is to carry out some particular project. Yes, indeed. So there is a type of assistance that's government to government. So the U.S. will give money. So let's just say in your example to Venezuela, even though. Actually, Venezuela is a terrible. Example, right? <laughs> yeah, I was like, "What's a better example?" Let's use Nigeria <laughs> for my okay. home, my home country, okay. or my, my my the country of my lineage. Let's yeah. use Nigeria. Okay, okay. Nigeria. <laughs> so, say for instance, in in hypothetically speaking, Nigeria uh, needs some funds to you know do some type of development in in whatever region, mm-hmm. um, and it falls in line kind of with the U.S. foreign policy perspective right. of assistance to Nigeria. Then they would transfer those funds um, or that type of assistance to run a program whatever the case may be, to the Nigerian government okay. for implementation with U.S. government oversight. Okay. The other part that we do, which is a, the, the vast majority of the work that we do, is working with civil society, either non-governmental organizations, which are typically um, secular organizations or faith-based organizations, which have to operate under certain parameters mm-hmm. um, since they're faith-inspired organizations and faith-based organizations, to run a specific program or to assist uh, meeting some goals mm-hmm. of humanitarian assistance within that specific country. Mm-hmm. Or we also work with a contracting company right. um, to implement this policy. All right, so before it was USAID personnel actually going out on the field and building the well, so on and so forth. Right. Now we're more providing the technical assistance and the oversight, and now we contractors are hired to actually build the well. So a separate company that has expertise in well building exactly. will build the well rather yes. than you, Eduardo, here in D.C., traveling out to Nigeria to build yes, the well. definitely. Okay. Um, and you said something that's interesting and, you know, a part of what a lot of the uh, questions are about, you know, foreign assistance is oversight. Can you talk just a little bit about that, like, um, how do we? How does USAID um, determine? You know that the money that's being given, our taxpayer dollars, that's being given to another country, is actually being used effectively. USAID um, in 2011 uh, made an ambitious commitment, and I quote this: "ambitious <laughs> commitment to rigorous and quality program evaluation." Uh, the systemic collection of analysis of information to improve effectiveness to inform decisions about current and future programming. Mm-hmm. Okay, essentially, if you haven't fallen asleep, <laughs> what, uh, that? <laughs> what that I'm means, awake. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> essentially, what that means is that they're doing evaluations, constant evaluations of the program, its effectiveness, mm-hmm. and providing reports. And these reports are typically done by third parties to ensure that there's no bias okay. in them. Okay, I didn't know that, all right. Um, and they reported transparently on evaluation findings, mm-hmm. and they share these reports um, on the Development Experience Clearinghouse, which is something that anybody could look at online. That's public, yes, it's the, public. the acronym I think is DEC. Correct, Yes, Correct. yes, yeah. I've been on that site, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anybody so can go there. And check it out. And check it out and look up by country, like, oh, Nigeria, look at all the money or That's, all the programs. This is what they said they did, and these are the this this is this report shows whatever they said they did, and whether or not they met certain goals or whatever. Yeah. And and specifically, you know, you cannot start a project and it be one hundred percent perfect all the time. I mean, that, right. that's never going to happen. Right. But these types of reports are used as evaluation findings to inform um, the project design to you know make corrections okay. throughout the throughout the life of the project. Like with anything, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and then, you know, use it as lessons learned or right. know, best practices. Right. Um, so that, that those are steps that USAID has taken, that the government itself has taken. And uh, in 2016, um, Congress passed the Foreign Aid and Transparency Accountability Act, which, you know, essentially has led to these things. Um, and it established greater oversight and accountability of U.S. taxpayers being used in foreign assistance Mm -hmm. um, and assistance spending. Um, And this legislation required government agencies, not just USAID, but any government agency, to closely monitor and evaluate all foreign aid programs. Mm -hmm. um, And based on the outcomes, to improve transparency by publicly sharing the data and success and failures. Right. 
and that's what we you're referring to the DEC, which right. can also be viewed on foreignassistance.gov. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I was yeah. on that site. That's a really great site, okay. and I encourage people to take a look at foreignassistance.gov. Um, yeah. And you know, another another thing about oversight and just you know checking out to see whether or not these programs work. I think a lot of people, you know, the rhetoric is is that is that uh, you know USAID is not transparent enough. We're wasting our dollars. And I read a study that basically that that said that um, uh, most Americans feel like, you know, 25 percent of our budget of the American budget goes towards foreign assistance. But the the reality is is it's like less than one percent of the American budget. I think uh, Oxfam quotes that uh, point eight percent, point eight cents of a penny, point eight cents of a penny, um, not even the full penny, point eight. Point eight uh, 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 of a penny goes towards of our pennies go towards um, foreign assistance. It's a very, very, very small um, percentage of the American budget. Most of our budget goes towards things like Social Security and health care and Medicaid and Medicare. And one of the questions I want to ask you, though, before we, we talk about some of the critiques about foreign aid, and I'm, I'm just curious about your opinion and. A lot of, frankly, people look at their communities here in America, if you're living, you know, say in uh, Houston, Texas, or I don't know, Des Moines, Iowa, uh, and there's a lot that happens in our local community. And people assume that money that we use to help, say, Somalia or um, Brazil or wherever could be used here in the United States to help with our education system, to help with our healthcare system, to help with gun violence and all of these very, very important issues. So Eduardo, tell me what you think, like, how do we balance that view? How do we, how do we, how does the United States grapple with, you know, the very real issues we have at home and the demand abroad to address issues that could impact issues here at home? You know, it's actually, it's interesting because um, the current administration, their what they ran their campaign on was specifically to focus, to turn our attention instead of helping out others, to help out people in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the responsibility of each individual government. You know, you have to take care of the people within your country before you take care of the people outside Mm -hmm. of your country, Mm -hmm. which, you know, plain and simple resonates and it makes sense. Right. The truth is a little bit more nuanced, okay? You know, the United States budget in in the fiscal year of 2016 was a little under four billion dollars. Okay, billion or trillion? Billion. Billion. Oh, sorry, sorry, trillion. Tr- yeah, sorry. trillion. Yes, 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 sorry. <laughs> a little over four yeah, trillion. It, it's a lot of zeros. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> it's of like, zeros. Wait, 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 yeah. to, that's like Oprah, four billion is like Oprah money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got four trillion. Yeah. <laughs> so a little under four trillion dollars. Okay, of which USAID had twenty-two billion which is essentially a drop in the bucket. Right. Okay. If you look at the foreign, at our budget, our, our the U.S. government budget, um, and the money and its expenditures, foreign assistance makes up less than 1%. As you said, point, you know, eight-tenths of a penny. Or, <laughs> I can't even calculate <laughs> yeah, I don't that. even know what that yeah, is. I, yeah. I'd just be like, tenth of a penny. <laughs> you know, but I'll tell you this. So, you know, for the money that we spend on taxes and the money that the United States has, we're spending less than 1% on that globally. Right. Just to give you an example, during that same year, human services in the United States, which essentially, I guess, we could qualify as domestic aid, right. which is social insurance, health programs, food stamps, education, yeah. veterans benefits, all yeah. that stuff, took out about 15% of our budget. Right. Okay. Education, right? Department of Education and all educational initiatives took up 3% of our budget. All right, defense, right? 15%, a little over 15% of our budget. Right. And then <laughs> Social Security, 24%. Right. You know, Medicare, 15%. So when we're talking less than 1% of that, it really need not be you're taking something away from us right. to do that. To do that, right. Uh, and I think that the way the United States, um, you know, the structure of government in this republic is a, is the fact that um, states have a great degree of autonomy mm-hmm. of whether or not to take, you know, quote unquote, this domestic aid right. from the government. Right. I mean, you saw that a couple years back mm. 
when the federal government was giving funding, you know, increased funding for Medicare. Right. For Medicaid, I'm sorry. Right. And states did not take it. That's a good point. To the point. detriment of their to the detriment of their, own of their people. constituents. Yes. That's a good point. So, and that's not the federal government's no, fault, someone would argue. The that's the fault, fault of whatever st- the leaders of whatever state. Mm-hmm. And that's where we talk about states' rights. So right. they don't have to take the money. Right. But um, so it, so when people talk about, oh, why are we helping out X country and this is not happening here, I think it, they have to look back internally into the state politics. Hmm. Because they're the ones that really control kind of the flow of federal monies. That's a great point. Into their respective communities. That's a great point. Um, you know, this year, the United States uh, State Department and USAID ask for the government, for the Congress, was uh, $50.1 billion. Mm-hmm. And overall, that's a lot of money compared to the rest of the government budget. I mean, that's that's pretty much nothing. I right. mean, just $34 billion is for foreign assistance. Right. So... And and I think one thing too, you, that's a great, that's really a great point. And my mind was going like eight thousand different ways. Yeah. I, uh, one thing we we didn't separate was the difference between like foreign assistance, which is non-defense, mm-hmm. non-military money, yes, versus defense, yes, which is goes to support our veterans, uh, our our military expeditions or military yes. campaigns overseas. Mm-hmm. And those are two completely separate pots of money. Indeed. And and so. The development piece has like the smallest, the, the smallest component, the smallest, yeah, smallest the component. Smallest budget, if you will. <clears throat> but the impact, though, is still great. As you, the story you mentioned, yeah. the impact is still great. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, when was it? In uh, 2013, Secretary Mattis. Um, well, he wasn't secretary then, but Defense Secretary uh, James Mattis, right now. He told congressional leaders, if you don't fund the State Department, and by that he meant, you know, diplomacy and development mm-hmm. aspects of it fully, then I need to buy more ammunition ultimately. Right. And so for people that might be thinking, well, why are we helping out these other countries when we should be making our military great and investing in our military? Yeah, yeah. This is part of actually helping our military and our foreign policy, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a lot cheaper to do a development project than to spill American blood. Right. In, in conflicts that need not be need not happen that need not happen mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and so this is a big component of our foreign policy and along party lines too i mean the the assistance and like you mentioned george w bush under under him we started like the the one foreign assistance agency that many don't know about because it's so tiny the millennium challenge corporation yes. mcc it was yes. started under a republican uh, administration. It's been supported um, by by left, right, middle. You know, they're very, very targeted in their work. And one of the things I want to ask you is in regards to the the criticism about uh, USAID and foreign assistance in America in general is that it's repetitive. Um, it's duplicative. Uh, that we have a lot of agencies doing similar things. And uh, various uh, think tanks have come out and, and said, you know, We've got to we've got to modernize USAID. We've got to streamline the the the, the delivery and the funding of of foreign assistance dollars. So my question is, you know, talk about just a little bit. Um, in your opinion, you know how how we could realign uh, uh, foreign assistance in America, given the various agencies, different or federal government agencies that operate? Like, how would you, if you had the magic wand, sort of realign? (laughs) That's like a big question, but how would you realign foreign assistance in America? There are agencies, we we do have many agencies um, that manage development. Um, As I said earlier, the Inter-American Foundation, Millennium Challenge Corporation, USAID. So yes, people from the outside could see it as duplicative and there are some duplication of services. Um, I think that really to to streamline it, to streamline it um, the Foreign Assistance Act would have to be rewritten. And that would require bipartisanship. And I don't think that's going to go anywhere, anywhere, uh, just period. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. And so I think that, you know, we can't let perfection get in the way of progress because we have organizations, for instance, USAID, that despite the fact that it's burdened, it's been, you know, historically it has been burdened by many political pressures, by Congress, by, um, you know, reports and earmarks and so on and mm-hmm. so forth, which really limit its capacity to be able to, you know, do as well as it could do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And actually, if you think about it, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, it was odd if you look at the you know organizational diagram of the government. Why would you set up another organization, another development um, mm. agency mm. outside of USAID? Mm-hmm. But it was just easier for them to start a new a one new, than to try to fix the than to try to fix the one or to try to meet the goals of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. You know, under the auspices of USAID. Mm-hmm. So, if Congress and the government really wanted to do this, they would have to start off by rewriting the Foreign Assistance Act. Okay, um, and at the same time. Um, you know, we, folding agencies and streamlining these things isn't, it's not easy. There's a lot of institutional memory, a lot of institutional pride in, in the organizations that mm. they've done. They've, they have a history. You know, if Congress were to lessen regulations, requirements, reports on USAID, in my personal opinion, I think it would liberate it from a lot of things that hinder it. And that Congress itself critiques and people outside of it critique and could do better. Mm-hmm. And under that situation, then maybe I could see a realignment, but but it would just be a monumental task. And, and I always tell people when they say, you know, well, it's duplicative and it's redundant, so on and so forth. You know, don't let perfection get in the way of progress, because right. what we're doing right now, we could work with. The Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network put out a great um, fact sheet um, that talks about some of the results um, um, and the impact that USAID has had. For example, some people may have heard of this term Power Africa, which is essentially a USAID initiative to make sure that um, African countries have access to, to electricity, essentially. And uh, they quote it as saying uh, that USAID has uh, mobilized more than $40 billion from private sector partners. And six million people in Africa now have access to, to power, which then allows them to do things like start businesses and, and just there's a whole host of um, impacts uh, that come from that. So I, I think you're right in that um, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't in our efforts to try to modernize, we shouldn't forget the fact that there are actually things happening with the way that things are now and, and how we're progressing. And, and let me add on to that real quick. So you talked about Power Africa and the fact that countries and people are having access to electricity, um, how they are being benefited. And let me put this in perspective for sometimes people that might take a, a negative approach or a negative view to foreign assistance um, and how that helps out, helps us international yeah, security. Yeah, please do, please do. When you have Africa has a huge population of youths, right? When you have youths that can't work because of power outages, because it's hot, because you know the lights went out, so on and so forth, what are they going to do? They're going to be hanging around other youths. They have absolutely nothing to do because the lights will come on later at six in the afternoon or whatever the case. So what are they doing between now and then? They're going to hang out with other people mm-hmm. and be susceptible to extremist ideology saying, right. look, the government isn't providing you for this. And somehow or another, they're going to mess, you know, include the United States is cutting off power, you know, right. these conspiracy theories, so on and so forth. And it feeds this kind of idea and paranoia that extremists use to recruit people mm. to their cause. The vulnerable people. Vulnerable people. There yeah. You go. Most youths or most people aren't going to be open to that if they're making money. Right. They were like, I got my dollars. Yeah, you know, I'm working. I'm just trying to hustle. I'm trying right. to make it, you know, I'm trying to make it in life. And, you know, if I open another shop or another restaurant, then I won't have to deal with these things. And right. All that stuff. Right. And that comes with access to power. That comes with access to clean water. Right. That comes with access to education. Right. And these are things that foreign assistance does. Which is, the United States does. It's funny. As you were talking, I was thinking that's the same exact thing we say here in America mm-hmm. when oh, we talk about yes. youth violence. Uh-huh. Right. Or when we talk about gangs or whatever, it's like, okay, we have to make sure that communities are equipped with the with the organizations, the jobs to keep kids off the street so that they're not susceptible to gangs or to foreign you know, or to or to just bad things that put them in compromising situations. Yes, of course. So it's the same idea abroad. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, people need, the, you know, kids need the infrastructure, the opportunities, all these things to get ahead in life. Right. Yeah. If you don't afford them to it, if, if those aren't afforded to them, then, you know, what's the recourse? Turn right. to gangs, turn to extremism, right. turn to violence. And uh, I mentioned Central America youth because in 2014, we had this exodus of Central America youth coming across the border. 
aggressive Rio Grande mm, right. in the summer, and it was yeah, you know yeah. it was huge. I had the opportunity to travel to the central triangle, to the northern triangle, which is um, you know Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And a lot of the programs that USAID and the State Department were focusing on was workforce development programs, um, you know, offering microloans to people because in these countries uh, there was no opportunity or there was very limited opportunities right. for education and to work. And say, for instance, if you were a single mother or you had a tattoo that was not gang related, you were automatically excluded from joining the workforce. Right. So what was the option? Hey, let's go to the United States. Right. Right. But by doing workforce development programs in absence of education programs, you know, someone apprenticeships, you know, computer programming, right. so on and so forth, and doing microfinancing loans for people to start their own business, to start their, right. you know, their uh, bakery, to start, uh, you know, a delivery service, so right. on and so forth, they're able to <coughs> um, become entrepreneurs in their own country and provide economic opportunities for people, so they don't have to leave. Right. And it's not. I mean, part of it is violence uh, under that situation, but part of it is not. Right. And so, and then when, when people talk about the violence aspect of it, I go back to the whole thing of saying, if people have opportunities, they're not going to be wanting to fight. Right. They're going to be wanting to make that dollar. Right. And, you know, improve their situation. Right. So. Right. Again, it, perfect. It, it, the dots connect for me. Um, yeah. And I think this is a great way to sort of wrap up our, our conversation here. I was going to ask you, you know, why does it matter to us here in America? But you've already done oh, okay. a fantastic job oh, sort you. of <laughs> connecting connecting those dots. I guess what, what we can end with is just sort of, you know, how I mean, we're we're at a critical time here in this country um, where a lot, of, like you said, the the current administration is have this mod has this model of America first and and uh, you know taking care of home again, which is actually not not a, a horrible principle. How would you how would you advise the current president to keep America first and you know fulfill our already said obligations to the world, right? A lot of people are giving him advice, giving the current administration advice, like cut cut USAID, cut State Department, cut funds for food, like all these ed recommendations are coming out. Eduardo, the president comes to you and asks you, sir, what's your, what's your thoughts on how we can keep America first, but also ensure that there's peace and stability around the world? What, what, are, what are like the top two things that you would tell him he should do? Well, one, I would say, have a seat because this is going to be a long conversation <laughs> <laughs> and take out a pen and paper. We could do both, right? And with great power comes great responsibility. And there has not been one country I have ever traveled to in the world that they've, they've criticized the United States. People always criticize the United States. I've been in Pakistan and oh my God, you know, United States, this, that, and the other. I was in Syria. I was in Jordan, so on and so forth. But when you tell them, would you like to move there? I have never found one person <laughs> that said no. Mm. So they could sit here and critique America, our government, so on and so forth. But if you tell them, hey, I have a visa for you, that'll get you a green card. They'll be like, I'm out of here. Yeah, they'll be like, peace. <laughs> right? So they look to us as a beacon of hope and so on and so forth. And I know America is not perfect. No right. country is perfect. Right? Right. But we've, we've established some ideals that at least we try to follow as much as possible. Right, right. There's a quote from, uh, Secretary of State, from former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice that I was um, on my way over here. I was kind of reading it, and it really popped into me because it says, um, for the United States, supporting international development is more than just an expression of our compassion, which we are a compassionate mm -hmm. country. It is a vital investment in the free prosperous and peaceful international order that fundamentally serves our national interests. So negating the problems that are happening in the United outside of the United States to focus on the ones exclusively in the United States, this type of isolationist mentality is not helpful for it. And we do spend a lot of money in the United States. As I said, probably about 15% kind of goes of our of just our budget social, goes to right. yeah to you to know social security quote unquote, and yeah care, domestic right. aid and, yeah, yeah. and all that and that less than one percent really impedes so many things i mean look at the iraqi refugee crisis which up until syria was the largest and most unreported refugee crisis of the century right so these so by us being able to help other countries absorb refugees or provide the infrastructure as we've done in jordan 
right, this development aid to help their educational system expand, so on and so forth, to be able to absorb more refugees, it limits the amount of people that are coming over here. Right. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with limiting the amount of people that come over here or not, but looking at it exclusively from, you know, the current administration's argument, it serves our best interests. Right. Um, both on a humanistic component and on a national security component. Right. And as President Obama and as President George W. Bush have mentioned, you know, the you mentioned four Ds. Um, this is how behind the curve I am because I learned just three Ds. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but defense, diplomacy, and development. Right. You know, they work. They function. And it's less than 1% of our budget. Eduardo, you've been so fantastic. I, I appreciate you. I thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, again, I you you brought that honesty uh, and realness to this conversation, which is why I had you on the show. So thank, thank you, you very, very much. much for me. It's been delightful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I feel smart when I'm around, <laughs> whenever I'm around folks like you. Um, uh, so generous. <laughs> <laughs> and in true fashion, um, on this show, I ask our guests to provide me a song that keeps them in a good mood because foreign policy and all these issues can sometimes be so depressing and uh, uh, can be a mood killer, <laughs> yeah. especially nowadays. So uh, tell us the song you picked and why. So I have to say that that was the hardest question you <laughs> asked me to because... Uh, I started going through my my playlist, and then I even went down and got like you know this box in my storage and has <laughs> CDs, and I'm like, okay, I just gotta keep it. <laughs> I just gotta keep it simple, keep it, yeah. Keep it simple. So I chose a gente de zona um, with they're singing with Mark Anthony, uh, and this song is very. If you look at the video, it's it really kind of reminds me of my family <laughs> in, in, in a weird way, um, and kind of our culture and our happiness, and, and it's you know pan pan Hispanic, so. Mm -hmm. Um, everything in the Western Hemisphere is represented, um, and it, you know, it's it's a lively song. It gets me pumped up in the morning. Yes. It gets me happy. It yes. has that international flavor. Yes, uh, and you know, gente, this one is from Cuba, and it reminds me of a time when I was in Cuba with my family, which was like one of the best one of the best vacations I ever had. So, um, so I think all those things put together, um, you know, really made it is the reason why I chose that specific song. But if you get a chance, check out the video because it's cool. You'll see all the flags and all that. I stuff. saw the video and it has close to 1 billion views. Oh, really? Wow. A billion. And it was like a, a billion people were on YouTube watching this video. And yes, I can see why because all the women are in their flags. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I was definitely shaking in my chair when I was watching the video. And, and, and you know the title, La Gozadera, which means like, you know, having a good time. I think encompasses... Um, you know kind of our my family's motto in a sense i don't know if that sounds right but <laughs> but uh you know it's just trying to make the best out of every situation yeah and, have, and enjoying what you're doing yeah and enjoying life because yeah. that's what it's for me at least that's what it's about yeah and i can tell i can okay. tell in the, okay. your accomplishments and, and what you shared with us that you know you enjoy this work and you're pretty darn good at it so. well, again you're very very generous and you're very kind and uh, thank you no problem um, that's all for today's show I want to thank you all for listening to this episode um, there's a lot more to discuss we've only scratched the surface um, you can catch this on WERA.FM um, listen listen streaming online you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash what in the world podcast we're on Twitter at WITW Pod, and you can listen also um, on Mixcloud at mixcloud.com slash what in the world podcast. Thank you again, Eduardo, for taking the time to speak with us um, about foreign assistance in USAID, and thank you all again for listening. Yeah.